Hello, this is Wayne Young, publisher Love of Portals. Okay, I guess we're on now. This is Wayne Young, publisher of Port of Harlem Magazine, and you're listening to the very first episode of Port of Harlem Talk Radio. And I have my very first guest on the very first show, and you're listening to it, and her name is Milagros Phillips. Hello, Milagros. Hello, Wayne. Thank you so much for having me on your very first show. I feel like I'm part of history. You are. <laughs> we are. <laughs> That's right. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but before we get deeper into the conversation, I want to remind people that uh, Port of Harlem Radio is being brought to you by We Talk Productions. And if you call into the number uh, to listen, but you also want to ask a question, just press 1. And uh, so I'll get the number to you out and again in a second. But first of all, let me tell you about Milagros. Um, she's worked a lot on racial literacy, and she'll explain more about what that means if you have a question about what racial literacy means. But she expresses her work in her books, doing speaking engagements, through corporate training sessions, and she holds online a weekly racial healing and lunch and learn program. So that's what we want to talk about today. And what she did of recent was uh, an article in Port of Harlem magazine that dealt with um, dealing with racism in two languages and under Jim Crow and colonization. So that, I guess I should add, too, that Malegros was born in the Dominican Republic, and you know they speak Spanish as uh, their first language, and she was raised in the U.S. at the age 10, so she's bilingual. And Malegros, my first question to you, though, is, um, what service are you providing people who attend your weekly race and healing lunch and learn online programs? Well, um, that program I began soon after George Floyd's death because I've been doing healing racism programs for uh, over 30 years. I have a two-day intensive that I've been doing for exactly 20 years um, this year, this January. And, and during that time frame, I've learned a lot about what it takes for people to really uh, begin that journey of healing, which is, you know, the journey of healing really is the journey into wholeness. And so um, I wanted to talk about racial trauma, and I, um, we put that first program together very quickly, within three days. And, um, and we had a couple hundred people that joined from around the world. And um, and then the following week, we had about 500 people that joined from around the world. And, and so we've been doing it ever since. We just to keep people in a path of growth. So every week is a different program, so people learn different things uh, about race and racism, because one of the things that we really are very far behind with is, uh, is racial literacy. And can you explain what racial literacy is? Yeah, so it's really interesting because race literacy is something that I had not, you know, it just sort of came to me as I was writing one of my books, and and I realized that that's it. It's like people people need to become literate about race, and by that I mean not just literacy in terms of having read books um, about race and racism and black history and things like that, but also having an awareness of the things that people experience on a regular basis that um, that they have to deal with. So it's the micro macroaggressions that people of color suffer on a regular basis, which is like you know somebody will say something and um, and someone else will respond to that and and it, it causes racial stress. Uh, in the body. So can I give you an example, or, maybe? Let me give you an example that I may have had. Tell me if this is what you're talking about. Once I was uh-huh. listening to um, this one lady, and she said, for instance, this was at the time that Obama had become president, and people were saying that we were post-racial. And she was telling mm-hmm. the audience that don't believe it, because if you see racism and you feel it, and you don't acknowledge it, it will bite you in the back. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, so that and might be, think, so that does that so so is that an example of me becoming racially racial racial literate so that I can identify it and understand it. Yeah. So 
so race literacy is the knowledge and awareness of the history of race, an understanding of the structures, the institutions, and systems that exist within that state that support race as a human divide, and all of the ways that racism affects individuals and, um, and collective lives or community lives. So that's what race, race literacy is. So, and that encompasses a lot, right? So that encompasses what you just um, expressed. It also encompasses things like, um, you know, understanding racial trauma and how that gets passed down from generation to generation. Understanding, uh, you know, some of the, the um, language around racial um, health disparities. So, for instance, you know, the, the health system loves to say that uh, black people have higher incidence of, you name it, diabetes, heart condition, um, asthma, blah, blah, blah. But no one's talking about the intergenerational historical trauma that people carry. A lot of the diseases that um, that are, are pervasive in the black community are stress-related illnesses. Um, and yet when you go to the doctor, they'll give you a pill for your um, race-related illness, but they're not tracking, talking about, or looking at the intergenerational historical trauma that people carry, the micro macroaggressions that they suffer on a regular basis, like driving while black, talking while black. You know what I mean? Like, it, 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 you have to understand that the reason people have race-related illnesses is because they're overtaxed and they're overstressed. And um, yeah. and I felt like no one's really talking about that. They just keep saying, you know, higher incidence up here, take a pill, you know, without right. so understanding I guess if, that it's so if, much so if I was more racially literate, if I was more racially racial literate, would I better understand what the lady told me about being, acknowledging that racism still exists and that we were in a post-racial society because it could hurt me if I didn't acknowledge it? Would it make me better understand what Kamala Harris said yesterday about um, there, there's no vaccination for racism? Would it help me better understand those thoughts, those mm-hmm. sound bites, if I understood racial literacy better? Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So if anyone has a has a question for Milagros, you can call us at 516-531-9540 and press 1. Um, so my next question is, how does your programs differ from the same as a – okay, how does the programs differ, or are they the same, rather, as the services you provide the staff of your corporate clients? My corporate client uh, programs are all um, unique in that I customize my programs based on the industry that I'm working for. So, for instance, if I'm going to do a presentation for um, a law firm, I talk about the law and the institutionalization of the law and the fact that um, we are a country of laws and laws don't always equate to justice. So, so those programs, so that's a very specific program. So I'm not just talking about race and racism, but I'm talking about how race and racism connect to the work that they do. If I go, for instance, to speak to a group of realtors, then my program is geared toward and speaks about, um, you know, the what happens when you try to get a loan to buy a house as a black person, um, looking at redlining and the effects of that and um, the generational wealth that that created for white families while it was divesting black families of their wealth by the way that neighborhoods were being treated and the way that they were blocked off and, you know, don't buy a house here because this is a black neighborhood and so on and so forth, which then created this huge wealth gap that exists today between white Americans and black Americans who are earning the same exact salary right now. And so... You know, so my programs are very customized to whatever the needs of that industry are. When I do my Lunch and Learn programs, those programs are more general. So, um, but every week I have a different program. So we did a program on um, racial trauma. We did a program on race and grief. Uh, on Saturday I'm doing a program uh, for women healing from racism. And it's a program to bring uh, women of color, black women, and white women together to learn about the foundations of race and racism. So we go back in history to the 1400s when this stuff first got started. 
um, and we talk about that and how that was established and the ways that it has affected women throughout history and continues to affect women today. So each one of those programs is, is very specific. It's uniquely structured to have a conversation around race based on that specific topic. Um, this past week, I did a program. Um, again, one of those ones I learned was uh, how supremacy became white. Because people think that when they say white supremacy, they, they don't really consider the fact that supremacy came from the rights of kings. And, they don't think what um, again? I'm sorry. They don't think about the, the the history of supremacy, the word supremacy, okay. where it came okay. from, how it was structured. We talk a little bit about the entomology of that, and then we also talk about the various ways um, in which that got co-opted into um, into the white racist movement, and um, and the ways that it plays out, and the the, the things you know like. Like white Americans don't realize that they're living under a caste system that is divided into um, supremacy, colonization, and enslavement. And so, understanding yes, those things, I'm sorry. Go ahead. What did you? I didn't understand. I was going to say we had to get, make sure we talk later about the similarity between colonization and being enslaved. But go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so having um, an understanding of that is helpful to people. So I just bring programs together that are creative because I'm an artist. I'm always creating anyway. And so uh, <laughs> so the programs are very unique and they're very creative. And um, But the conversation is always around the issue of race. Yeah, because we love artists. But the thing is, is that um, <laughs> you also spoke of grief, race and grief. Now, how do those two connect? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, so there are levels of grief. There's, of course, historical grief um, and how people have never really been, um, there's never been an actual collective ritual of grief around the way that people were taken off of the African continent and, and, and brought through the Middle Passage into the so-called New World where the natives were, were, were killed and, and their, their land was robbed and they died of diseases and all those kinds of things. So, so there's this, this, I look at things and, and my work, my work with healing racism is about the whole being, which is mind, body, spirit, and emotions. And so, okay, so you're, when, speaking of collective, you're speaking of collective grief, Dan. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And so what I do is I walk people through um, the layers of grief based on the Kubu. I, I, I use the Kubu Ross model for this past one so that people can understand the various layers of grief and how it applies to race. Okay. So for Paul of Harlem, you wrote an article called Experiencing Racism in Two Languages with Jim Crow and Colonization. Is having your experience with racism in an Anglo and an Hispanic culture Given you an advantage on speaking about racial issues, and if so, how? Um, well, actually, in a way, it does because I, I look at race from both an outsider and an insider. An outsider, because I spent the first ten years of my life living in the Dominican Republic. My family was bilingual; everybody spoke English except for me. Um, my <laughs> well, English and Spanish, right? Um, in fact, they always spoke English, and they didn't want me to know what they were saying. Um, uh-huh. My mother was an American citizen. Actually, my mother was born Dutch, and she became she an American citizen. Dutch, Dutch, um, and she became uh-huh. an American citizen when the U.S. Virgin Islands were sold to uh, the Dutch sold the Virgin Islands to the United States, and, okay. um, and because she was born in the Virgin Islands, she was born in Saint Croix, and so um, so I so my family is from those. Islands, right? So I was born and I lived there till I was ten. So I experienced a lot of colorism, um, which is the way that that racism expresses itself in the Dominican Republic. And there's of course racism because the the five percent white population of the DR were the ones that were running the country and had been. Yes, I've, I've been time. there, and it's in my opinion is one of the worst racist places I've been in the world. <laughs> yep. 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 It really is. But before yeah. you go too that far, you said your mother was born. Your mother was born what is now the U.S. Virgin Islands, I guess. 
He was born what? I'm sorry. I said your mother was born in in a country that was controlled by the Dutch. Exactly. Yeah. And so then she, I guess, she grew up. So guess, okay, and so I guess she grew, grew up speaking Dutch in an adult-related no. culture. No, no, no. Okay. No, no. She was taken to the Dominican Republic when she was just a baby. So, so, oh, okay. but her mother didn't speak any Spanish. She only, my grandmother only spoke English. She didn't gotcha. speak any Spanish at all. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, so yeah, so there's a lot of racism in the Dominican Republic, which is mostly colorism, and um, you know places like Jamaica and Puerto Rico and all of those islands, Cuba, all of those islands have a lot of colorism. So that's how their racism shows up: whose skin is lighter, whose hair is straighter. You know, this this horrible uh, state of Stockholm syndrome that they have never gotten past. No one has ever really looked into how to heal people from that because they think it's normal to, to live like that, you know? And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, so it's, it's, um, it's really, um, you know, it, it's really interesting. So, so that's my outsider experience. My insider experience is when I, once I came to the U S because I'm a dark skinned brown woman, um, people thought that I was African American. And so they would say these horrible things in, in Spanish in front of me about me and the way that I looked, um, thinking that, you know, or laughing and making jokes about the way I looked and about, you know, my dark skin. And, and then, of course, I would say something to them in Spanish about how rude they were and how ignorant they were, <laughs> whatever, right? And, and then and and they would also like, drop off. Oh, you, <laughs> you know, it was just like, oh my god, you know. So anyway, <laughs> so um, you know, so so yeah. And then of course, you know, being denied work after I graduated college, people didn't want to hire me, and you know, and it took decades for me to realize that my name was playing against me, right? Because my name is Milagros, which is a Spanish name, and um, and so even before I arrived. You know, there were, I'm sure, many interviews that I, that, that I never got because I have my name on my resume, like, you know, like a normal person, right? Except your exactly. name can be played against you. You know, it's like, oh, this person probably speaks, doesn't speak English well or, or isn't smart enough, whatever it is, you know, what, whatever thing. So, so there was that. And then there was the fact that when I actually did show up for interviews and things like that, they weren't expecting a dark-skinned brown woman to show up. Exactly. And so, you know, so, so yeah, so no, it's, it's been, it's been interesting, of course, all of which has been training for me to do the work that I do, because I haven't heard anyone in all my years of doing this work, talking about how the caste system was established, how the Middle Passage began in the Dominican Republic in 1509, so it's 110 years before the first, they brought the first Africans to the continental USA, they were enslaving Africans in the Dominican Republic, working in the sugarcane fields and picking cotton. And, and by the way, a lot of, of that was, of course, going off and making Europe wealthy. Um, and so, yeah, so it's just, you know, it's been an interesting journey in terms of just, you know, experiencing race and racism, um, you know, from, from a couple of different perspectives. So given what I noticed most about being in the Dominican Republic, for instance, is that when I, and it's, it's, for me it's very much the same here, but they were just more open. Is that, if, for instance, if mm-hmm. I walked into the store, once a police, policeman stopped me, he was dark-skinned, and he was trying to hustle me for some money. To get away from mm-hmm. him, I went into the store, and I went directly to the white man, because I knew the white man was the boss. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, he was, and it was mm-hmm. just so obvious. And I think at the time, this guy was running for president on the white party, and he and the lady was white. And there was another party that was a minor party with two darker skinned people, and it was just too obvious that there was this <laughs> color divide, and mm-hmm. no one cared. When I got back to the states, I saw in Jet Magazine at that time that they were playing monkey music behind the two dark skinned candidates on the radio mm-hmm. there. Which reinforced what I had yeah. seen, but I guess yeah. it's not too much different from here. It just may not be as obvious. So um, mm-hmm. when people talk about colonization and um, and Jim Crow, oftentimes people, in my opinion, think that it's such a distinction 
But in my opinion, it really isn't a great distinction between Jim Crow and colonization because the output is often the same, and colorism is one of those things. Do you mm-hmm. see it something differently or similarly, or in a similar fashion? Well, colorism is um, is, is basically uh, people comparing the shades of their skin and the texture of their hair to to their white colonizers and enslavers, and so so, so there's that part of it. Jim Crow is more institutionalized stuff. You know, like, you know, who could get married to whom? You know, what marriages were considered legal versus marriages that were not considered legal. How people could marry outside of their race um, for for the longest time. You know, people don't realize that all of that was changed on patterns of inheritance. Because in in the European culture, which they exported throughout the world, wherever they colonized, the uh, only person who could inherit was the firstborn male. And if you are raping women and having children with them, you, your firstborn male could be the child that you have with your enslaved servant or with your colonized servant um, who were also enslaved. And so, you know, so that child, if it was a firstborn male, still could not inherit because he was born outside of the bounds of marriage, and and they made marriage legal between two white Europeans or descendants of Europeans, and so only the only marriages that were actually legal at first were two white people getting married, a male and female getting married, and so that they could produce that firstborn male who could inherit the land and all the stuff that they had stolen. And so, you know, so you have to, like, like, words matter, right? So we have to be clear about the things that we say about that stuff because we don't often talk about it from the perspective of looting and raping and pillaging the land. You know what I mean? Like, we don't, we, when it comes exactly. to colonization, we don't, use those, we don't, we don't really we, talk we about it. We use other words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, other we words. Yeah, we use other words. Like we use okay. nicer words. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but we need to start talking about that the way that it needs to be talked about. We need to talk about reparations and the ways in which reparations have been made. I was just um, speaking to a group yesterday, um, a corporate group, and I mentioned the fact somehow reparations came up. And I said, I think what people seem to forget is that America already made reparations for slavery. And and it was done very quickly after the Civil War when the plantation owners sued the U.S. government for loss of property, and they won. And so they received reparations for their loss of property, which were the enslaved people that were no longer working for them for free. And so, you know, I mean... You know, the the people who were free did not get reparations like the four years and a mule. Most of them did not. The few that actually did get it by the, the time of the Industrial Revolution were millionaires. And somebody wrote a book about that. So, you know, so it's, it's the awareness that we need to speak about this stuff, you know, with the language that is proper to what was done. So, for instance, after Columbus, sailed back to Spain to prove to the, the crown that he had reached India, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Because that's what he, he left Spain saying he was going to look for a better route to, to the spice, you know, better route to the spice um, capital of the world, which was known as India at the time for the Europeans. And so, you know, so he set sail, obviously in the wrong direction, but anyway, but he set sail. And um, and when he went back to Spain, because when he landed in Pisqueya, which is the original name of, of La Española, um, a.k.a. Dominican Republic, when he landed there, there was gold and silver and food. Because remember, the Europeans had three months to grow their food, so they were tiny people because they were so malnutrition. They were uh, disease-ridden because their, their sanitation was horrible. And so, you know, so here he lands in this lush land where there's gold, silver, 
um, you know, natural resources and tons of food. Um, and right. so, you know, so he took back samples of all kinds of things, including human beings, and who, you know, they were the first trafficked, um, were the, 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 um, the Arawaks or the, the uh, Dainos that were living on that island, they were taken back to prove that he had reached India. Because remember, the natives had dark brown skin and straight jet black hair. So to him, they looked Indian. Can we wrap this part? We have five more minutes. And I got you. I want to okay. clear some things up, but go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> but I want to make sure, what group did you say got reparations? I want to make sure we got that clear. Yeah, the um, the landowners or the the uh, plantation owners who owned enslaved um, descendants of Africans in the United States sued the U.S. government after the Civil War to the U.S. government for reparations for loss of property. Remember, each human being was worth money because they could sell you, trade you, rent you out, and so on and so forth. Okay. And so, um, so they got reparations for loss of property because people had been set free. Oh, okay. Because I only, mm-hmm. only thought it was the guys in um, D.C. had gotten reparations, the slave owners in D.C. There were slave, uh, there were slave owners that were, there were, it was, wasn't just those slave owners, there were slave owners, um, whoever sued pretty much won. Whoever sued. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So and, it doesn't matter. And then, I mean, what does it matter whether they were in D.C. or North Carolina? The bottom line is that they got reparations, and yeah. the black folks didn't. Okay, that's right. what really matters. At least to me, that's what it's like. What when I when I yeah, that's what matters. And I found that it was like, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> okay. And two more questions. So, how in the in the sentence, how does racism differ from colorism? So racism is power, and it's, it's a form of privilege that is based on power, access, and um, I don't know why I'm, I'm you know, I'm having a, a brain flash, a senior moment. But anyway, but Sorry. It's, uh, it's, about, it's about power, okay? Right. So it's the power to keep somebody from a job. It's the power to, um, to be able to run for election and all the, you know, and it just goes on and on and on, right? Right. Colorism gotcha. is is just whose skin is darker, darker and whose skin is lighter, which comes from, you know, the the house slaves versus the the field slaves and and that craziness that went on back then. And, and it says the lighter um, one is on top or has more privileges. Right. And 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 you know when you think back on it, they kind of did because first of all they worked in the house, they weren't out in the hot sun in the field all day, which kept their skin lighter, right? Because because the melanin wasn't being uh, triggered because they're not out in the sun, right? And then right. you also, they were usually the children of whoever the, the, the slave owner was, right? So, so they weren't really considered family. They were still considered slaves, but, but they were siblings with those kids in that house, which meant that they also, also because they worked in the house, they had access to better food. They had access to nicer clothing and that kind of thing. And and so okay. that then became that separation between oh the lighter you are the better you are and the better you're treated and that kind of thing. Also, when you look back into the research, the darker skinned slaves were beaten regularly and they were beaten more severely than the lighter skinned slaves. How that shows up today is what the research is telling us is that while black people don't make as much money as white people, darker skinned black people make less money than lighter skinned. Black people. Yes, I've seen That's that. That's what the research is telling us today. Yeah. <laughs> and the final question, then, and we only got the one more minute before our next guest, um, is how do you explain the difference between racism and white supremacy? So there really is no no difference between racism and white supremacy. White supremacy is 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 simply racism expressed in a different form or talked about in a different form. And the thing about supremacy is that white people enact and live in white supremacy, that's their lives, right? So it's like, it's like the air they breathe, so they don't really recognize it. 
And so what you'll right. find is, for instance, you have uh, some white male politician who will get on TV and say, my friend so-and-so, the other white male politician, is not a racist. I've known him all my, um, all my life. He's <laughs> never been a racist. And I'm like, well, how would you know? You're not exactly. qualified to tell. You know what I'm saying? You've never experienced exactly. racism. You have no idea if it's hitting you in the face. You know? <laughs> and, so, and so you're just not qualified to, to say anything. Just please be quiet. Because really, you, you're just not qualified to make that statement because you have no idea what racism really is. You've not studied it. You haven't cared about it. You don't even like to talk about it. So how would exactly. you know if so-and-so is a racist or not? You better go ask a black or a brown person if what they just did or said is racist, because we can tell you. Exactly. Well, Malago, we're out of time. And, you know, we can keep talking, but if there's anything else you would like to add? Well, I would love to have more folks join, join us on Monday. Um, the Lunch and Learn is uh, 12 noon every Monday, and they can get the information on my website. If you can't afford to pay, we make scholarships available. Please only ask for scholarships if you can't afford to pay. We always tell people, for the price of lunch, you can become race literate every Monday. And, um, and then this, this Saturday, August 22nd, we are doing a racial healing for women that includes a powerful spiritual ritual. So if anyone okay. would like to join us on either of those, please do. That okay, makes you buy my book. Right, <laughs> and you can find everything she does, including her TED talk, which she didn't mention, <laughs> on our webpage at portofharlem.net. And uh, the article that she wrote is called "Experiencing Racism in Two Languages with Jim Crow and Colonization" is at the very top of the page. Find it, click it, and you can see all the links to everything about what she does. And thank you so much for your time, Milagros. Thank you so much, Wayne, for having me on your very first show. And congratulations. And being my very first guest. <laughs> <laughs> Many okay. blessings to you, my friend. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you. Okay, coming up next is Samba Batch. I mean, Samba Baldy. And I explain why I call him Batch later. But Samba Baldy. Is he available now? Yes. Uh, hey, Wayne. How are you doing? It? I'm doing pretty good yourself. Good to talk to you again. What we're going to do is ask you a couple of questions, but first let me introduce you, and then I'll try to let you talk as much as you possibly can. I'll talk as little as I can so people can understand better who you are and what's going on in your life. But first of all, let me introduce you to our audience. And if anybody in our audience wants to call in and ask uh, Samba a question, the number is 516-531-9540, and then click 1 so that we know that you want to ask a question. And uh, we'll remind you that uh, Port of Harlem Talk Radio is brought to you by We Talk Productions. So Samba Body was born and raised in the Gambia. As most of our readers know, I have an affinity for the Gambia, so it's like talking to my brother here. And, it, he is, he, and the Gambia, as you probably know, is known to many as the home of Kunta Kinte. Uh, Baldy came to America about 20 years ago. And since then, he's run for two political offices, and this month he won his second one. So he's two for two. He won the Democratic nomination for a Wisconsin State Senate seat. Uh, When he wins this fall, because he's in a very Democratic district, he is poised to become the first Muslim in the Assembly and probably the first Gambian-American in any state legislature. Welcome, Samba. How are you doing today again? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you, Wen. Thank you for the invite. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, obviously appreciate the invitation. Uh, this being your face, so I am uh, grateful and humbled oh, great. to be your, your 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 second guest. Well, you're my second guest on our very first show. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> okay, absolutely. So, hey. so, so you've been in the United States for about 20 years. And as I mentioned mm-hmm. before, you ran for office twice and won. Mm-hmm. When you think back about your achievement, what runs in your mind about uprooting yourself from the Gambia and settling into mm-hmm. a new environment? Mm-hmm. So, yes, like you said, uh, this is my second <clears throat> political office. Uh, so just to give a prelude, uh, obviously an immigrant uh, from the West African nation of the Gambia. I've lived here for now for 20 years. Um, so um, 
the first office that I ran was for city council uh, to represent District 17, which is the far east side uh, of the city of Madison. Uh, and this was in 2015 uh, April. That was the first time I was elected. And since then, I've been re-elected uh, twice. So I've served oh, okay. three twice. times. Um, yeah, this is my third oh, time. Only two-year terms. Yes, they're two-year terms. Okay, gotcha. So this is my third term at the city council. Um, so and so, uh, this last uh, December, you know, uh, I decided to run for uh, state assembly district 48, uh, which is also a, uh, my whole city district is part of it, plus three other uh, city districts. So it's huge. It's the far east side again of the city of Madison North. Uh, uh, basically. Um, so, uh, you know, I always tell people when you live in a community, you want to be part of that community. The most difficult thing, in my opinion, to do is to immigrate, uh, leave your own country where you were born, raised, and have friends and went to school uh, um, to another country that you have no idea about. Uh, the difference with America is that it has always been, in many cases, uh, a beacon of hope for many people around the world for uh, educational opportunities, uh, but for economic opportunities. And so uh, that is how I end up uh, moving here. And then when I immigrated 20 years ago, I decided to make America my home, my home in the sense that, you know, I integrated into the community, make sure that I understand, but also give back to the community, but also make sure they understand who I am and where I am coming from and what I can bring uh, to the table. So I think this is how I built uh, a, a community uh, within and around me to an extent that when I decided to run, uh, it wasn't difficult to, to, to prove my case uh, to the residents and constituents of District 17 that I can mm -hmm. do the job and I'm committed to doing the job. Okay, and so when you think about the day that you got in the plane and left the airport mm -hmm. in Banjul, the capital of the Gambia. Mm -hmm. How do you think about what happened in the past 20 years when you let, when you got on that plane in the Gambia and till now? Yep. What do you think back about right. those years? Mm. So obviously growing up in Gambia, I grew up, you know, the geography or the region or the country maybe much better than many of the listeners. Uh, but I grew up in the rural area uh, in a village called Choya. Uh, it's a population of way less than 100 people. I uh, started primary school. I take six, way, uh, uh, six mile one way to uh, school and then come back uh, six uh, mile to home. Uh, and then I end up moving to the capital where I finished my high school and then went back to Makati Island Division, now called uh, CRR, Central River Division, or Janjambure, where I did my high school in a, uh, at a boarding school. Uh, after that, I came back to uh, do pre-college, two years, and then university. And so eventually, I, I got here. So imagine yeah, but in a nutshell, but, yeah. but in, but in yeah. a nutshell, is there a particular feeling you have yeah. about yeah. uprooting yourself yeah. from that environment that you know to come to this environment? Yeah. So imagine uh, coming from a village to a city like New York. We got to New York in the late in the night. Uh, so where I was coming from, uh, electricity was not the norm. Even if you have electricity, it's mainly for uh, household consumption. It's not streetwear lead, and so from the sky you can see uh, the light. So coming into New York, it was like the sky was upside down uh, in terms okay. of uh, all the stars and all this kind of stuff. So that was the shock. But also there was a lot of cultural shock uh, coming from a village to a city like New York, uh, face or second biggest uh, uh, city in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the United States or the world, uh, and all the infrastructure that I was exposed to all of a sudden, uh, from the airport uh, to the bus that we took to the hotel, uh, to the hotel itself, uh, but also all the services, how you interacted with people, the kind of customer service that you experience, uh, just how people do stuff and, 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 and offer themselves to help you. Uh, was a cultural shock. But beyond that, when I get into the really American uh, community and started really reading and learning and understanding, 
uh, you, you know, there's a lot of uh, differences uh, in uh, with regards to our culture, how we do stuff, but also how far apart we are in terms of uh, development. So it was really... So you think, uh, go ahead. So when you think back, do you think yourself as being a naive person then or an adventurous person then or a crazy person? So I'd say I was always uh, an adventurous person, uh, somebody who was very curious. So imagine from a, a village where basically education was not the norm. I was the first person in my family uh, to go to a school. Uh, so obviously it was uh, adventure, but also curiosity. I, you know, uh, like I said, I uh, end up living here to do school, mainly uh, computers. And I didn't see a computer until after high school. I had never seen a computer or exactly know what it is outside of a dictionary definition. And so gotcha. uh, it's a combination of both, basically. Mm. So we'll chalk it up to being adventuresome. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so mm-hmm. often in America, we are taught that mm-hmm. leaders reflect mm-hmm. the people they represent. Yes. But increasingly, we see people like yourself breaking that formula. Mm-hmm. So an example, you have an Irish representing the Irish, for example. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how do you, as an immigrant, mm-hmm. an African, and a mm-hmm. Muslim, build mm-hmm. a bridge with your majority white, mm-hmm. American-born, Christian mm-hmm. constituency? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like I said, I made America my home, my country. I made uh, the state of Wisconsin my state and my city, Madison, as my city. And so what I did was really to be part of that community. I tried to learn who they are, understand them, how they do stuff, their culture, speak their language. Obviously, we speak English back home, but obviously the English of America and the English of Gambia is different accents and all that stuff. So I really tried to integrate into this community. But it was also important that they know who I am, the people that I interact, that they know who I am, uh, how much I value what I am as a black person, as an African, as an immigrant, as a Muslim, but also somebody who has made America his home. Uh, And so I think the relationship is really what led to uh, where we are right now. Uh, Apart from being a volunteer in the community for all these 20 years, I also have professional experiences uh, basically in the public and private sector. So I've worked for corporate America for over 20 years. Uh, I've owned businesses uh, since 2007 was the first time when I started an IT consulting company. And since then I have had restaurants, uh, environmental related consultancy, you know, and things like that. And now eventually uh, uh, being uh, having a political experience by being a member of the Madison City Council for uh, six years. So all these things, I think, is what led. And, you know, I mean, I am a hard worker, you know. I don't like blowing my own trumpet. But I have well, a you trumpet. must be a hard worker. Uh, I think that's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, six years at the city council, I delivered to my constituents uh, the, the promise I, I made uh, when I was running the first time. And so they saw that in me, that, look, Sambo is just not talking the talk, but he's also walking the walk, and therefore... It is important that we, in fact, give him more responsibility. So for me, this is a contract between me and my constituents to make sure I go uh, to the assembly, uh, work for them, represent them, uh, not be mysterious. Like many people, once they get into positions of responsibility or uh, elected office, uh, they become mysterious and just uh, kind of get corrupted into the system. I consider myself a different brand of politician. Yes, I can run away from being a politician, uh, but I am more of a servant leader, I call myself, or a public servant than really a politician. And so uh, I think uh, this is what my district, uh, particularly District 17, but now eventually uh, District 48, uh, what they have realized. And so uh, I also communicated to them very well uh, during this campaign season. As you may know, this was a very, very contested race. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, all of us, obviously, we are very qualified. But I think what pulled me apart is my track record uh, and my uh, 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 hard work. Okay, let me share with the audience, because I know you're not going to toot your own horn, but he won in a four-way mm-hmm. race with almost mm-hmm. nearly 50% of the vote. That's unheard mm-hmm. of. That's very good. Mm-hmm. But, again, I mm-hmm. think the point is is that I think you're mm-hmm. saying that one way you built a, uh, built a bridge between your constituency and you, despite your differences, is that you 
let them know who you are, and mm-hmm. you took the time to learn who they are. Yes. Yep. Even though, even though you I, all, I, even though you all have differences, you opened up that that avenue yep. of that bridge by mm-hmm. being open. Yes, absolutely. I I think um, that is very important. The reason why, uh, and you know, American the American society has always evolved. I mean, they've always grown and you know changed and all this. So imagine when the Irish were immigrating here, we didn't know them that much. The country people here didn't know them, so they were not very welcome at the beginning. I think the biggest secret to really loving and caring and being compassionate to each other is to know each other. If I tell you today the, the Christian people of the Christian faith are, are terrorists, you will say, what is wrong with you? That is because you know that your next-door neighbor is a Christian, your next-door neighbor to that is a Christian, the next-door neighbor to that is Christian. But it's easier if I tell you that Muslims are terrorists. Uh, because you don't know them, it's easier. That's what you see in the news, probably what you hear uh, on the radio and things like that. So knowing each other, and even all this racism and what we call the systematic racism and injustice, uh, it's all coming from uh, people just not wanting to talk to each other, know each other, uh, uh, and understand each other's values and what we care about and all that. Ultimately, we are all human beings. And so uh, it is important that we trust and try to learn and understand each other. And this is also true within uh, the black community. Uh, recent immigrants and uh, descendants of slavery, or at least uh, people who were born here generations uh, ago, you know, there's yes. a lot of misunderstanding. But what I have realized is that the more I integrate into the African-American community, the more we uh, uh, realize what we have in common. Uh, so it is exactly. important that we open up to each other uh, and talk to each other and get away from uh, what me, we may have learned from colonialists, uh, what we, ha- we may have learned from uh, coming out of slavery and what enslavement meant uh, and all this kind of stuff. Talk to each other. We are one and the same people. If African Americans are not respected, in my opinion, in the United States, that means they'll, be not, they'll not be respected anywhere else in the world. If they are not respected in Africa, they cannot be respected in the United States. So we have a common goal as black people. And I keep telling people, when you are driving your car and the police want to pull you over or blow your head off, uh, they don't ask you when did you come to the United States. Are you a descendant <laughs> of slaves or did you just immigrate uh, yesterday or something? They just look exactly. at you as a person of color or a black person. So let's talk to each other. Let's try to understand each other. Ultimately, it's our hearts that should make the difference. It's not uh, our skin color. None of us choose to be black. None of us choose to be white. None of us choose to be Latina. But we all can choose what we want to be as human beings, using our brain, our intellectual capability, and what is endowed on us. So uh, I think that is a tool for uh, uh, good coexistence, but also... Uh, something that can uh, help one uh, have compassionate borders. Okay, on that tip, you know, I just want to make a connection between you and the um, Milligros who we just spoke to, that we talked about how colonization and Jim Crow can have mm-hmm. the same post effects, even mm-hmm. though they, even though the systems were slightly different or different, but the effects mm-hmm. would be the same. Mm-hmm. So, um, when you went to Colombia, I understand you went to Colombia mm-hmm. with uh, Colombia, yeah. South America, mm-hmm. that is, with yeah. um, I think it was uh, Attorney General. I forget his name now. Yeah. Keith Ellison. What's his name? Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Keith, go ahead say it again Keith. now. Yeah, Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison. Mm-hmm. Yes. Did you all go to the Afro-Colombian community or the general community? So we went to the Afro-Colombian community, we went to the indigenous community, but we also went to uh, flower growers. So, for example, when you have a bad day, your loved one will send you flowers. Many of those flowers in the United States are coming from Colombia. Uh, The people who work on those uh, uh, plantations or whatever you call them, uh, flower farms, are predominantly women and women Mm. of color or predominantly uh, native uh, women. And so what happened is the pesticide and the insecticide that they use is not good for women, particularly when they get pregnant. They get a lot of bad exactly. and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there are also factories, sugarcane factories and farms 
mainly owned by American companies. Uh, you know, uh, the employees are not well paid. Uh, uh, in the event they get injuries at their jobs, uh, uh, the, the companies are not taking care of them. Uh, the indigenous uh, uh, Afro-Colombians, uh, 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 also their land is taken away from them. These people have been there for hundreds of years, and in many cases, uh, cases around ports, you know, uh, the rivers and oceans and stuff like that. But American companies are coming and pushing them out of these communities. So our trip was to all these places, uh, including speaking to uh, uh, legislative bodies, uh, about this, but we also visited the American embassy to talk to them about this stuff and how we really want them to push and make sure that people's rights are respected, people's uh, human rights are respected. So that was uh, the nature of the trip in Colombia. And how was it from a, being um, an African-American of recent mm -hmm. African heritage going to mm -hmm. another African community outside of North America and outside of Africa? How was that experience mm -hmm. mentally? So it, 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 it's difficult uh, in many cases when you look at our conditions around the world. I mean, black people. Uh, civilization is believed to have started in Africa. Uh, so we are a very su successful community uh, with, you know, uh, organized uh, structure of government, uh, whether that was the way the Western people wanted it or not. But we had a system in place. But came slavery and also religion. Uh, African and, and Africa has really uh, transformed in a way uh, unfortunate. Uh, everybody in Africa now is hold on to either the Christian or the um, the Muslim religion. Uh, to an extent, we are losing our cultures and our traditions and things like that. There's nothing wrong with being a Christian or Muslim, whatever faith. But I think it is important we maintain uh, some of our cultural stuff. Uh, so you go around Colombia and all these countries where black people have settled for hundreds of years, and you see how they are still marginalized. Colonialism uh, and slavery has done a lot of damage to our communities. And so it will have to take all of us. African Americans in America cannot make it happen by themselves. Africans by themselves in Africa cannot make it happen by themselves. We must have to find a way being Colombian, whether that is South America, North America, uh, 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 Africa, to come together and be at the table, that we are just as intelligent as everyone else, we are just as worthy as everyone else, and therefore our voice should count, and therefore our so, plight should be listened. <laughs> so by being with the Afro-Colombians, did that strengthen mm -hmm. your belief in that we should work collectively as African people? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, anywhere you go, you, black person is black people. I mean, our pride is the same. Uh, you go there, you look at the slums uh, where these people live, and you come to America, uh, some of the zip codes, uh, particularly in the Chicago area, uh, what is happening there is unbelievable. So we have a collective responsibility to our situation. Uh, and unless and until we start identifying uh, how we approach this, uh, it's going to be basically impossible. Like I said, America alone, African-Americans cannot do it all by themselves. Uh, for example, uh, 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 Nigeria is the fifth largest oil producer or, or, or supplier to the United States. Over one third or so, or close to a half of the cocoa around the world is coming from Africa. So if coming Africa from where now? Alone, oh, cocoa, from Ghana and Togo, isn't it? So okay, if like plus the oil-producing yeah, oil country, like the diamond and gold-producing country like South Africa, can come together and have a common agenda, an agenda that knows that the West will always find a way to divide them so they refuse to be divided and have a common agenda and say, look, the way you are treating our black folks in the United States, what happened to George Floyd, and all these other people who were killed should not happen. Otherwise, no cocoa for you, no gold or diamond for you, <laughs> uh, no oil for you. They will change. But African-Americans must have to understand that Africans are part of this equation. They are just as important as the African-Americans are. And Africans must also have to see the same way, that in order for us to succeed, 
we must have to have these alliances amongst ourselves and be strategic yeah. around. And we cannot only think about today alone. We must have to think about 100, 200 years to come. But in many cases, we are just thinking about now. Uh, if I am an African-American kid here, like I succeeding in politics and all this, eventually I leave my neighborhood. And they are no longer my problem. When you are successful as an athlete, athletic, eventually you leave your community and never look back to your community. Those things must change if we really, really want. Because Michael Jordan alone, yes, he was a successful guy, but he's a black person no matter what. And when the police pull him over before they know it's Michael, they would have done everything that they wanted to do. So exactly. we have to succeed as a community. You must have to be afraid. All police officers who feel like comfortable kneeling on somebody's neck for almost a minute or nine minutes or however long it was, must yeah. be afraid so to do that. They so we, in, our last five, in, my, in okay. our last five minutes, let me make sure I get these other three things covered because mm. one of the things that you just mm. mentioned is, is working together. And one of the things mm. that I know that you have done is work with mm. Kenafing, which is a suburb of Banjul, mm. the capital of Gambia. Mm-hmm. And that you yes. helped establish a sister relationship between Madison and mm-hmm. Kenafing. So, mm-hmm. can you tell me in two minutes what's the mm-hmm. purpose of having a sister city, and how does it benefit mm-hmm. Madison, and how does it benefit Kenafing? Mm. Yeah. So the, the 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 benefits of a sister city are non, uh, uh, uncountable. Uh, so uh, when I was elected in 2015, we had a sister city program for 30 years plus in the city of Madison. But none of those sister cities were from Africa. So when I was elected, the first thing I said, that must have to change. And so I was part of the sister city, I'm, I'm still a part of the sister city collaboration committee. So I invited the African community and said, look, we have this program, no African uh, city has ever been part of it. If you are interested, let's work on it. Gambians were very galvanized, so they came forward and then we had a, a sister city with kind of thing. Uh, also eventually, uh, a sister city with Ethiopia, uh, a city called Bahirda. So now we mm-hmm. have sister cities. And so this is why it is important that we try to be at the table. Imagine for 30 some years this program existed, but nothing in Africa. So and what's the advantage? And what, and what does, and what does it yeah. have? What, 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 what happens? To, and what, what does so, Kenneth get out of it? So Carnifing, what they get out of it, obviously the United States is considered a developed country and Carnifing uh, and the Gambia is considered a developing uh, country. So the exchange program, our mayor has visited here at least two or three times. His staff has visited. They've had training this week on Tuesday or Wednesday this week. We had a training with uh, his uh, senior staff on waste management. Uh, since we've started the relationship, we have donated over 1,000 dustbins. We've uh, worked with them uh, to uh, try to help them map their city. Uh, we've worked with them to try to uh, help close uh, a dump site. But we also have a lot of things to get, uh, to learn from Carnifing. Uh, so we have some cultural programs. Every year, the sister city here, the Carnifing sister city in Madison, organize events and invite people. So we have penpal programs where kids here have friends in the Gambia. And so we hold this event where we do cultural displays and talk about our cultures and where we come from. So the educational part of it is also very important. So it is important that we have this relationship. And I also want to make sure that this does not stop within the city, but I'm really interested in really connecting the African-American community and the African uh, uh, continent. When I was there, we did what we call the Roots Homecoming Festival uh, to uh, celebrate, you know, uh, 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 the history around Kunta uh, Kinte and just the relationship between us and the African-American community that way. Right. Yeah, I'm familiar with the Roots, 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 the Roots uh, Festival, but and I think that's really great. I understand basically that you help make sure that there was communication between the two and that that communication and the training, et cetera, is invaluable, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Absolutely. One of the, okay, in our last minute, I just want to do explain to people that you're, sometimes when they go on the web, they may see the word Samba. Your name is being mm-hmm. Samba. And I thought it was mm-hmm. interesting because you made it clear that Samba mm-hmm. is like a nickname. I mean, I'm talking about Batch, rather. Batch. Batch. Sometimes mm, you may mm, see your name being mm. Batch Baldy, because Batch is just a mm. nickname for Samba. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, exactly. was... So, uh, you know, I mean, every, like I said, every community, every society have their own culture, right? Um, exactly. So if you call somebody Bill, uh, they are generally called Williams and stuff. So when you 
anybody who is called Sambo is uh, the nickname is Batch. So I, oh, you know, okay. many well, people well, Let me stop on. you right there because we only got eight seconds. Mm. But yeah. thanks, for everyone, for listening. Go to portofharlem.net, like us on Facebook, mm. and you'll see more about Samba Baldi. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. I really appreciate the conversation, and I look forward to more of it.